Turn with me, please, to the 45th Psalm. The 45th Psalm. I'd like to consider with you what we have particularly in verses 1 to 9. Particularly in verses 1 to 9. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with oil, the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thine honourable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in the gold of Ophir. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord bless it to us and our meditation upon it this morning. We mentioned on Thursday, and I repeat, beginning of this sermon, that Christ is everywhere in the Psalms. There are some psalms, of course, which, in which he is found more directly than in others. In some psalms, it is the church that is more in view. But in psalms like Psalm 45, there are both in view. The first nine verses, I would suggest, speak of the Savior, speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the verses that follow from 10 to 17 of his church. This is a picture reflected in the New Testament. For example, in the letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, where marriage is likened to uh, the relationship of Christ to the church. You're aware of this. And also, of course, in the Old Testament, that wonderful book, the Song of Solomon, which speaks of the same theme. So when we come to Psalm 45, we are on holy ground. We are on holy ground. For here we meet with Christ, a divine person, the Messiah, the God-man. When we sing the Psalms, we're singing about Christ. Let's always remember that. And again, I repeat something I said on Thursday. But we sing of, of Christ. We're singing about Christ in his church and of Christian experience. That's where we come to not least when we think of these first nine verses of Psalm 45, which are our meditation as we prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning. Now, some interpret this psalm as a marriage, as a marriage uh, event, a marriage of Solomon with the daughter of Pharaoh, but really there is far too much said of the central character to see this one presented to us here simply as an earthly king, like Solomon, for all Solomon's temporal glory. 
Here we are invited to be overwhelmed or overwhelmed with the theme. This is the implication of verse one. My heart is inditing or is, is the margin has boileth or bubbleth up, bubbleth up with this, with this contemplation concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. My heart is bubbling up, it's overflowing, says the psalmist, with a good theme concerning the king, concerning the king. It is like a grand report of a royal wedding, I dare say. Imagine all the lovely words and the grandeur and the beauty and the central figures. The glory and spectacle are wonderful for the believing soul. And this is how it should be as we contemplate the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us by all means contemplate the Lord Jesus Christ as we go forward from here in his will to the Lord's Supper on the morrow. So this morning we think of verses 2 to 9 that speak of Christ as the groom of his church, which is his bride, the subject of verses 10 to 17. So what do we learn of Christ here? I'd like to mention two things which should encourage us in this, in this thought, why he should be adored. Why should Christ be adored by you and me, by all people? The first thing I'd like to say is because of his beauty and authority. He is to be adored because of his beauty and authority. We have this in verses 2 to 5. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured out, poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. And so on, down to verse 5. His beauty and his authority. Now, it's important to recognize that Christ is, and from all eternity has been, a divine person. In the incarnation, he took to himself human nature. It is therefore proper only to speak to him, of him as a divine person with two natures, divine and human, in one divine person, the Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm reflects the person of the incarnate Son. He is the groom of the bride, the church, which he has purchased with his blood. Now notice the order of the thought here when we think of adoring him in terms of his beauty and authority, on account of his beauty and authority. First of all, he possesses remarkable beauty, does the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Now, although presented as a king, it's not his qualities as conqueror or ruler which are mentioned first. It is his beauty. We first consider Christ here. In his beauty as the God-man, thou art fairer than the sons of men. Now that, of course, is faith speaking. That is faith speaking. When a man or a woman or a child can say, thou art fairer than the sons of men and the children of men, that is faith. We know what the world thinks from Isaiah chapter 53. What do they find in him? No form or comeliness, no beauty 
that they should desire him. But the eye of faith cannot help but see his beauty, the beauty of the God-man, one who was holy, harmless, and undefiled, and separate from sinners, one in whose life and actions grace flowed, one whose spiritual and moral perfections are clear to the eye of faith. We read some very telling things in John chapter 1, the prologue to John's gospel. John says, he came to his own, chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe in his name. He also says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, this one, this Savior, this God-man, divine person, Redeemer, was not deformed by sin. He was not tainted by sin. He was the Lord from heaven. But his beauty, we might say, was also reflected in this. In the second place, he speaks gracious words. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore, God has blessed thee forever. Grace is poured into thy lips. He speaks gracious words. Now, it is said that grace is poured into his lips. What a great and gracious teacher the Lord Jesus Christ is. It is said of him, no man ever spake like this man. John 7 and 26, no man ever spake like this man. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He spoke gracious words. He spoke words that were gracious, though they challenged challenging words, healing words, comforting words. He cast out demons by his words. He rebuked and admonished by his words. His words penetrated men's souls, women's souls, children's souls. Yours, if you have experienced the new birth, if you have been saved by grace, his words penetrated your life and your soul. What a wonder. What a wonder it is. What is a wonder that any was saved. But it was Christ's word that, that penetrated our hearts. The word by the power of the Holy Spirit brought you from death to life if you have been saved. It still brings sinners from death to life. So that anyone here who is not yet saved, who has not yet confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his word brings life to your soul. Pray for it, plead for it, that the word would penetrate your soul and regenerate your heart. Also, in terms of his gracious words, he invites by his words. He invites by his words, not least in the context of our services in these days, in relation to the Lord's Supper. He says with reference to the bread, take, eat, this is my body. 
And he says in relation to the wine, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What does that speak of? It speaks of his sacrificial death for sinners and the beauty of his redemption. He says, if you love me, you will keep my words. You will keep my words. And it is because of this that he is blessed of the Father. As we read at the end of that verse, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Blessing also comes to those in whose life his grace and truth are found, have been found. But also, not only does he possess remarkable beauty, and not only, not only does he speak gracious words, but he has authority. We read this in verses 3 to 5. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O thou most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and so on down to verse 5. Now Jesus said, I am meek and lowly in heart, but he is king and conqueror in his exalted state. Following on from his resurrection and his ascension, he is equipped for battle against sin and Satan. We see something of this. We'll note something of this in verses 6 to 9 that follow. He is pictured, in other words, as a mighty warrior. We said that we are, he is to be adored because of his beauty and because of his authority. Well, here is his authority, you see, writ large over verses 3 to 5. This warrior, Christ, he is majestic. He is a mighty warrior. The sword here indicates authority. Christ is majestic. The warrior is ready to conquer. The gates of hell will not prevail against him. Let us take encouragement from this. Now, he has triumphed over the grave. He has triumphed over hell. He has triumphed over Satan. Now, his weapons are not carnal, of course, but spiritual, but, and, but mighty. When you consider the warfare, the history of warfare, you can't but be impressed how much folly there is in this fallen world. It's so earthbound with limited aspirations and limited ends as well. There's a futility about all warfare. Warfare, of course, is a feature of our fallen world and our fallen nature. But there is a folly attaching to it. By contrast, this warrior and his weapons have to do with eternal and timeless things. They have to do with men's souls and not just their bodies. They have to do with eternal life and how it is obtained and how it is experienced. Verse 4 and 5 can be seen clearly to refer to spiritual, to spiritual war, ar armaments. In thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Therefore the people fall under thee. Here are spiritual weapons deployed 
by the Lord Jesus Christ in his work in building his church. He rides prosperously. How does he ride prosperously? Well, because of truth, humility, and righteousness. We read in verse 4. These are spiritual qualities. These are the Christian's effective weapons following the mighty one. The people of God will be people who have a currency of truth and meekness or, 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 or humility and righteousness. They will say, the people of God, those who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, they will say, I will be true to the Lord and I will speak truth to my neighbor according to his revealed word and will. I will live out the truth in obedience to Christ, to the one who is the way and the truth and the life. I will rest upon his merit. His people will also be people of humility, people of a contrite spirit, something of which was spoken on Thursday, the fast day, the communion season. People walking humbly with their mighty Savior. The followers of Christ, furthermore, will be people of righteousness, people who know the right, the character of their king, reflecting it. They follow, they follow peace and holiness. That is the man or woman reflecting the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is at the heart of living Christian faith. As to the great king, we read here that his arrows are sharp in the hearts of his enemies. The people fall under him one way or another. Now, we could say this is a two-edged sword, a saver of life or a saver of death. Those of you who are saved, those of you who are saved, wasn't that how it was when first Christ first captivated your life? His word is an arrow piercing your heart, stirring your conscience, producing conviction, conviction of sin, converting your soul. Happy days, harrowing it may have been for your sin to be exposed by the Lord's arrows. Nevertheless, happy days when you come to, came to realize that there was forgiveness with him, that he might be feared. But all the Lord's people should have been subdued by the Lord. All the Lord's people have been subdued by the Lord and willingly fall under the sway of the one who shed his precious blood to pay the penalty for their sins, our sins, those who trust in him. It is different, of course, with the unsaved. You are still strangers to him. What about the unsaved? Well, this is still a day of opportunity. It is still a day of grace. It is still a day to come to Christ and cast your all upon him, to receive him and all his benefits and promises, his grace and mercy for your soul, that you would be found trusting in Christ, that his arrows, even this morning, through his word, would penetrate your soul and convert your soul that lies in sin and bring you to that place of light and liberty of the children of grace.
This gospel is a wonderful thing, delivers us from the wrath to come. It gives us, it gives us the inheritance of the saints in light, the inheritance of the saints in heaven. Why should people turn from the gospel? Why should people reject and deny the gospel? Why should they reject and deny Christ when he is offered in the gospel in all his freeness and fullness? Only come to him. Remember, he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. So he is to be adored because of his beauty and authority. In the second place, he is to be adored because of his splendor and power. We have this, I would suggest, in verses 6 to 9. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. This is no earthly king spoken of here. Everything about this divine person inspires adoration and should have adoration from us and from all people out there, be they ever so indifferent at this present moment. Consider what we have here. The king is exalted. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Here is the exalted divine person. The king on his throne, his scepter, is, this scepter is a sign of power, of course, is righteousness. He hates wickedness. Christ, our king, having accomplished what the Father gave him to do to save his people through the cross, is now exalted to the right hand of the Father from where he exercises authority until his coming again. This, it goes without saying, surely, surely makes him adorable, an adorable saviour, God, man, redeemer. But then the king's role, rule, we read, is everlasting. We have this in verse 6 also. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thy throne is forever and ever. It is everlasting. The Christian, beloved, is part of a kingdom that cannot be moved. It is not passing away. It's not a mere flash in the history of this world, notwithstanding the world's apparent strength and antagonism so rife in our day. Fear not, fainting soul. His authority cannot diminish. His kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. Devout soul, you are part of an everlasting kingdom of righteousness, which will last through the eternal ages of eternity. With the Lord, Jesus Christ, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the holy angels and the redeemed souls. in the endless ages of eternity, secured by the cross and by the resurrection and mediation of none other than this glorious Messiah, divine person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King's rule, 
is exalted. The king is exalted and his rule is everlasting. But the king's rule, notice, is spiritual. We have this in verses 7 and 8, don't we? Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. The king's rule, I suggest, is spiritual. It was the divine person in our, of the Son in our nature who was appointed the earthly work of establishing his kingdom and redeeming his people. Now, the anointing of oil here is beautiful. It speaks about, it speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus had without measure. Think of the appearance of the dove in his uh, descending in his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Scented garments speak of a spiritual aroma. That is what attaches to this savior. I say the king's rule is spiritual. This is what Christ was and is. That is how his followers are to be. In whatever measure a saved sinner can be, can attain your community should smell, as it were, the aroma of Christ from you, dear believing soul. I often find it very interesting that when you go into big stores these days, well, there are not so many of them around, I suppose, but one of the first things that strikes you is the aroma. I suppose they put these perfumery departments at the opening of big stores for their attractive properties. You're attracted by the sweet aroma. So it should be with the believing soul. For the Lord Jesus Christ has sent his Holy Spirit, came at Pentecost, indwells the believer, indwells the believer. And so the believer should show forth Christ, show forth Christ, show forth his love, show forth his show forth his, his person by their words and by their deeds. They should show forth something of the sweet-smelling garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at the Beatitudes, it's interesting that the beginning of the Beatitudes deal with, um, deal with, um, the, they, they deal with, with the matter of, of poverty of spirit and mourning. But if you look at the, at the Beatitudes, and if you look at the, Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Look at them. Those who live out such things will reflect the Savior. They will reflect the Savior. They will be what we read in Ephesians 5, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. It is figurative language, of course, but it is very touching and moving. What should the follower of Christ be? We are to be, to God, the fragrance of Christ amongst those who are being saved, amongst those who are perishing. The fragrance of Christ. This will reflect, be reflected by the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the Christ-like man or woman the Christ-like man and woman who is the blessed among those of the Beatitudes. 
But what about verse 9? King's daughters were among thy honourable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of offer. We could only make a suggested comment on this point. Where does that fit in? It is court language. I would suggest to be taken figuratively, figuratively as speaking of the glory surrounding the king, the God-man. We are inclined to believe with Andrew Bonner in seeing the king's daughters as symbolically representing the angelic hosts. They are the natives, as it were, the, the holy angels are the natives of the heavenly country from in which and from where he reigns. And the bride, the queen, what is the queen? Who is the queen? Surely the queen from a far foreign land. Who can this be but the redeemed church, the king's bride? Something of which he will speak in this psalm in verses 10 to 17. Here is a wonderful picture then, I would suggest, of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is none other than the God-man Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Emmanuel, God with us. Here is the second person of the Godhead who came to save his people from their sins. Here is the sin-bearer. Here is the one who suffered and died upon the cross. Such that, that such sinful wretches and hell-deserving wretches as you and me might be saved from their sins. Here is the sin-bearer who suffered and died upon a cursed cross that such sinful wretches could be saved through grace by faith. Saved and reconciled to God by Christ, by his death. And by that resurrection, which put the seal upon his death. Here is the God-man who suffered and died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Here is the God-man, the one put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So, my dear friends, as you prepare yourself to go forward to the Lord's Supper, I say to you, however dark the day through which the people of God pass, and there is no question that we are passing through a very dark day at this point in history, the divine Redeemer in our nature is going forth, goes forth, conquering and to conquer. Remember, he is the one we remember in the Lord's Supper. Indeed, he is the one who is with his own in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We have that wonderful picture at the beginning of Revelation chapter 2 of the one who is walking among the lampstands. The one who is walking among the lampstands. And that is what he is doing in our Lord's Supper as it is observed. And as we sup with him, and he with us, believing soul, prepare yourself for this through prayer and meditation. Prepare for yourself for this through contemplation of the one who is described here 
as the fairest, as fairer than the children of men, into whose lips grace are poured, but whose sword is upon his thigh. May those of you who don't yet profess be encouraged to do so. Don't hesitate. Don't let another communion season pass without nailing your colors to the mast and saying, Christ is mine. I am his. Christ is mine. I am his. Call upon him while he is near. Put your trust in Christ for time and for eternity. None perish who trust in him. May the Lord bless these thoughts upon his word. Let us pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for what it speaks concerning thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his beauty and authority and power. O oh Lord our God, we thank thee that he is undefeatable, that he is the one who is upon the throne, that he is building his church. And we thank thee, Lord, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the same in power and authority, the one who is all authority in heaven and in earth. O oh, help us to bow the knee before him, and our hearts, Lord, that our hearts would go out to him in faith, in love, in hope, and in obedience. O oh Lord, bless us then as we go from here and as we contemplate the ordinance on the morrow, if thou should spare us. Help us to live by faith, looking unto Jesus, and forgive us all sin, especially in holy things, for his sake. Amen. <clears throat>